Welcome to the Lockdown Grizzlies podcast. My name is Sean Coleman. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Special Sunday edition of the Lockdown Grizzlies podcast. But the big reason why we are here today is because the Grizzlies just had a big back-to-back two-game swing with the Golden State Warriors. The thing about the Golden State Warriors game is that, of course, the Warriors came into this weekend against the Grizzlies with one game lead. They were in the ninth spot. We were in the 10th spot. And so we had two games. We were hoping that the Grizzlies would get a two-game sweep, but thankfully they got a split. And I'll tell you this, there was a lot to take away, but I'm glad to welcome another gentleman who I've gotten to know through many of the Grizzlies media sessions here recently. And I'm very happy to have him aboard to discuss this huge back-to-back series with the Warriors. His name is Adam Teich of the Back Sports page. Adam, how are you doing today? Sean, I'm doing great. It's weird to meet people like this. I mean, we've been in these media calls for like three, four months now going on. And having just interacted with fellow reporters on Twitter and through these calls is driving me insane. Like, I hope in a normal year we'd be able to meet at like the forum, maybe a bar even. I know that's like risque now. I just turned 21 this morning, so that's a possibility now, which is exciting. Happy birthday to you, man. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, man. Nothing else I'd rather be doing on my birthday, I swear. This is so exciting (laughs) for me. I'm honored. (laughs) It's a a good way to celebrate. Well, I'll compliment Adam. You know, when when we talk about uh, celebrities that we would love to narrate our life, you know, Morgan Freeman's out there, Matthew McConaughey's out there. If there's ever a gentleman that you want to substitute for yourself to ask a composed, eloquent question, it is Adam Teich. This man in these media sessions, I'm over here rushing out of breath, things like that, asking these questions. This man comes out of nowhere acting like he's been he's been doing prepared speeches for 40 years, but, 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 you know, Adam, it's a great to have you. The main reason why I want to have Adam on is because he is a very, very impressive mind when it comes to basketball. And that's what we want to talk about, you know, on today's show. So Adam, you, you watched the games this weekend, um, you know, frustrating first game. Uh, the Grizzlies just had no answer for Andrew Wiggins, who, you know, had one of the best offensive games of his career, Jordan Poole, who has been an absolute revelation since coming back from the bubble. He scorched us as well. Let's start with that first game. What'd you take from that first game that really surprised you about how the Warriors were able to expose some weaknesses for the Grizzlies? Well, it's the Warriors' defensive game plan for me. They were doing something really unique on defense that I don't think we've seen any opponents of Memphis do this season. You know, normally when you're sitting down to draw up a defensive game plan against the Grizzlies, I think teams' first instinct is to cut off Jaws' driving abilities. And that makes sense to me, right? He's flashy. He's the team's leading scorer, reigning rookie of the year. You think the Memphis Grizzlies, you think John Morant. But what the Warriors were doing that I found really interesting was they were collapsing on the paint on defense, but it seemed like their main focus on the perimeter was to cut off Grayson Allen from shooting. And just from a numbers perspective, I think that's an interesting decision. You know, the the four starters that aren't Grayson are shooting like a combined, I think, 31% from three. So obviously those are shots that you kind of let opponents beat you on. And I think the Grizzlies just haven't seen that a lot, right? We've spoken a lot of media sessions about jaw adjusting to blitzing the pick and rolls. Um, But I think Golden State threw some really unique coverage at us in the first game. And so to see the Grizzlies bounce back from that with seven made threes by those non-Grayson Allen starters in the second game, you know, I think that to me was the difference was, learning and adjusting to Kerr's sort of unique game plan. 
and just boasting the flexibility that we've been applauding the Grizzlies for this entire season. I think it's a hell of a point. And the reason that I say that it's a hell of a point is because, you know, that is something that's really there. You know, we can sit here and put, you know, as much uh, emphasis on these numbers as possible. Like, it's true that the um, uh, Jaw, Grayson, Dylan, Kyle, Jonas, sorry, I evidently I ain't woke up yet. But those five together really had a lot of success in the first quarter. I mean, like I say, coming in and out of the first half, they were the best net rating, you know, of any starting five that had played an elongated time together in the NBA. But the general scheme was, was that if Grayson was out, Desmond will come in. It's just clear Taylor Jenkins likes his shooter. He likes a shooter next to Jaw to start the game. And a big reason why they were so successful is that coming into, I believe, the Miami game, Grayson and Desmond were like 38 of 70 on first quarter threes. Their threes are making more of an impact than they usually would because they're going to take on more of the overall value influence than other things would that will happen later on in the game. So I agree with you. It was it was interesting, but it also makes sense because he was playing to the strength of his defense. The Warriors were coming into this weekend number one in the NBA in limiting the teams from shooting inside the arc. So if he took away the main three threat, he went to the strength of his defense. It seemed like it worked in the first game. Yeah. I mean, that's just the Draymond Green effect to me, right? That first game was classic Draymond. As someone who's watched a lot of Warriors games growing up, 0 for 6, doesn't make a 3, scores 2 points, but 13 assists, 11 boards, and he's plus a bajillion. He's like plus a bajillion. Like, that's just Draymond's wheelhouse there. I sort of liken him to, like, a driving instructor for the Warriors this season. I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but when I was learning to drive, I had to sit in this car where the driving instructor shot, uh, sat shotgun. He had his own steering wheel. He had his own pedals. And so, like, if I was ever steering the car into disaster, he'd, like, grab his own steer- steering wheel and slam on the brakes and really, that's what that's what Draymond is doing for this Warriors team. You you can even see him every possession. He's yelling at people. He's motioning them around. He's making the entire system work. And going up against a defensive mastermind like that, I think, is a really good test for the Grizzlies. Obviously, they've had four games now against top six defenses. And so I think learning to grow through going up against someone who's as smart and just as defensively sound as Draymond is sort of a great building block going forward. And now I think, you know, looking forward to the schedule against teams like OKC, against teams like Boston, who are a little bit more lax defensively. You know, I think after Draymond put on an absolute masterclass in that first game, Grizzlies are going to take the court in the future and be like, oh my goodness, like we have it easy now. No, exactly. And you're right. In the first game, it was incredible. You know, the Grizzlies let the Warriors shoot 48% from three. They allowed Wiggins to go off. They allowed Draymond to go off. Now, I read an interesting stat. Um, you know, Draymond had two points, uh, 11 assists, and 13 rebounds. I looked to see, you know, Draymond, how many times in his career he had had 10 or less points with double-digit assists and rebounds. He's now done it 13 times in his career. That's second all-time. You want to guess who's first? First, um, yeah, he, 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 this guy, Draymond is second all time with 13. This guy's got 32. He, he above and beyond was the master of this. Oh man. Oh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm ping-ponging between, between Magic and Rodman. Good, good call, but it was actually Jason Kidd. 
Now he may oh, have been yeah. a bit bit before your time. I know his career was probably when you were you were probably still from your toddler to child stage, and then that makes me feel horrible saying that. But what I'm getting at is, is that yeah, that was he was a. But if you want to talk about Russell Westbrook getting a triple double, you should have seen Jason Kidd get his triple doubles because they snuck up on you like crazy. But the thing about it is, is that in that first game, the Grizzlies allowed the Warriors to shoot 48% from the field. They also allowed for them to make 15 threes. Well, last night, so the Warriors still made 13 threes, but this time around, the Grizzlies only allowed for them to shoot 34% from the field. The Warriors made 31 field goals in last night's game. I think it's been more than a year since they've gone a game with 31 or less field goals. The big thing was, was that the only way they were staying in the game was because of the free throws, but because Beyond that, there really was a good defensive adjustment made by the Grizzlies in last night's game that really prevailed them and again showed that this Grizzlies team can rise to the occasion to be an elite defense. Sure. Yeah, that was a ballsy performance for Memphis the other day. Um, I, w- I was cackling to myself when I saw Alan Smilagic getting getting open gym threes. Alan Smilagic, by the way, nickname is let's just call him Smiley. Um, watched a lot of Warriors games in my time. I remember when when Bruno Caboclo came out, Bill Simmons drops the infamous two years away from being two years away. Smiley is like 12 years away from being 12 years away. Um, but absolutely a, a defensive To, to, to back your point, dubs. not interrupt, but Smiley, but, but Smiley looked like every church or every church league player's dream out there trying to shoot those threes I, I i was praying for him it didn't work but it, it my, my church league dream of playing an nba game was seeing smiley play last night go ahead adam smiley's younger than i am that that blows my mind like you want to talk about me being a toddler i am older than alan smiley age um but but to me what, what stands out is just winning sort of that grinded out game like you mentioned that the warriors took i think it was 34 free throws I was kind of just hoping, because I love me a good statistical anomaly, I was kind of hoping that the Warriors would finish the game with more free throws made than field goals made. Didn't quite get there. I think they made 28 of their 34 free throws. But to me, being able to win that game is a super encouraging sign for the Grizzlies. They're last in the league in free throw rate. Um, And so roster worries aside, you know, being able to beat a team that shoots 34 free throws is super reassuring to me. Um, because especially in games like the postseason where the game kind of grinds to a halt, getting to the line and scoring easy buckets is paramount. And so for me, seeing that this team can sort of overcome that disadvantage from the free throw line, still parlay that into a victory, that's something that they're going to need to build off in the future. Ideally, you want the Grizzlies to be the one shooting more free throws. Um, But if not, especially because that just doesn't seem to be the makeup of this team right now, if not, very reassuring to see that the Grizzlies can still win despite the free throw disadvantage. Well, and I'll say this for some encouraging notes. So I I looked at it um, before uh, the game coming into Friday night's game against the Warriors. So before Valentine's Day, the Grizzlies were averaging just over 18 free throws a game and were at, they were 29th in the league. Since Valentine's Day, they've actually averaged about 22 and a half free throws and they were 12th in the league. So, I, you know, I'd asked Coach about that. You know, he had said that the aggressiveness certainly has stepped up, but you're right. I'm going to tell you this. The refs were whistle-happy last night. That's just a simple case. I'm typically not someone who likes to blame it on the refs, but it was certainly there last night. But the big thing is, is that it's just crazy how the game went. So the Warriors start 16 of 57 from the field. 
They've got 34 free throws, and we're just past halfway through the third quarter. And then at about the 430 mark in that third quarter, the Warriors make like nine of their next 12 field goals. We kind of close, we we kind of chill them off about nine minutes into the fourth quarter. But in the last 16 minutes of the game, Adam, we didn't allow a free throw. And that's the reason why we won. You know, that's the reason why the Warriors stayed in the game was because of free throws. So I agree with you. It's these grit and grind games that we're finding success doing. But overall, does it not encourage you that the Grizzlies, despite the three not being there, they're finding different ways to win? I think that is a step forward. We're not going to take that next step forward truly until we start shooting well. But it's nice to see them find different ways to win when it calls for it. That game was ugly with a capital E, as I like to say. After that second quarter, I didn't know if I needed like a drink or just to like go watch the 2014 Spurs as a palate cleanser or something. You know, I think to me with aggression, your representative case for the Grizzlies is Desmond Bain, who really impressed me in that late third or early fourth stretch. He was aggressive, made things happen for himself off the dribble, notched a couple steals, dished out a couple of assists. You know, to me, that's the next step in his game. He's always going to be valuable on the court with his shooting. I think that's pretty self-evident. But for me, taking an active role in the rotation, being a creator on offense, you know, not just letting the game come to him, but actually confronting the game and getting more aggressive. I think that's the next step in Desmond's game and really a promising sign that, you know, even a rookie can get aggressive when the team needs it. And that Bain projects to be a factor you know, as an active playmaker in the starting lineup going forward, you know, a couple of years down the road. Absolutely. And, and I think the thing about it is, is that, you know, he, um, you know, st- he, he certainly has continued to progress and you could see it. His three point shots were there, but there also is a clear improvement that you're seeing with his overall approach to the game as recognition. He's being able to adjust based what off the based what the defense is throwing at him. And when they're trying to knock him off the line, as we know, the Spurs try or the uh, Warriors try to do, he did a great job react, still being productive, even though the three shots were there. One other thing we'll say is this is another person whose shots, you know, have not been there as of late is John Morant, but he is finding other ways to contribute. Coming up, we're going to talk about Jaw. Going to talk about kind of the way that things are evolving for his game as well as the lineups that are with him in the backcourt for the Grizzlies. Welcome back to the Locked on Grizzlies podcast. So in this segment, we're going to talk about John the backcourt, looking at kind of how they're progressing when it comes to the first quarter and how the lineups are shaking out. In the third segment, we'll discuss the five spot. JV has been playing well. However, what exactly do the numbers say when it comes to how his production correlates with the Grizzlies winning? We'll discuss that in the third segment. But Adam, let's get right to it. So John, let's be honest, you know, Last night, another game where he struggled finding his shot. The three-point ball hasn't been there all year. He's tried to adjust, and he's made adjustments. The Bucs game, the Heat game, he stepped up, gave us a chance to win in the Bucs game, led us to victory in the Heat game. But my question to you is this. When it comes to his offensive game so far this year, are you seeing progression? Are you seeing him just kind of take what's been given? What has stood out to you about Jaws' offensive game this year have as teams have clearly made it a a point to limit his ability in the lane. All right, Sean, you you ready for the word of the day here? What's the word of the day? It's a five-syllable word. It's heliocentric. That's fair. Well, I'll I'll say it this way then. I think 
this season has been fascinating to see Jaw learn how to operate as the crux, one syllable, of the Memphis offense. Um, you know, I, I hope I'm not misattributing this quote. I think it was Dion Waiters who said that he'd rather go 0 for 20 than 0 for 9 because that means he stopped shooting. And so for yeah. Ja, we saw him have nights where he would sort of second guess his shot, would get a little bit more passive in sort of the midseason stretch. To me, like a five for 20 night against the Warriors is actually pretty comforting because it means that he's really comfortable, you know, taking the role as someone who needs to take 20 shots on this team and will get others involved regardless of whether those are dropping or not. I mean, last night, Joss said that he was going over the film, seeing areas he could do better in. And I think he keyed in on the offensive glass. Jaws an athletic dude. He's got that second jump. I know that's a term we normally use to talk about bigs, but we saw him be a factor on the offensive boards. He had two putbacks last night. Um, and, you know, his fire and verticality, I think, will allow him to keep that in his repertoire as a consistent skill. I also think just Jaws is learning to trust that the offense around him is going to shape up. Um, and and this is this is half Jaws gravity and half a coaching adjustment. But one of the things I really liked from that second Warriors game was the Grizzlies off ball movement. Taylor Jenkins pregame was stressing the importance of passing and good ball movement. Um, but the Warriors were sort of blitzing both the pick and roll ball handler, but they were also blitzing the screener. There are a couple of times that I think Brandon Clark got double teamed out of the pick and roll. When you don't have any bigs, that's what you got to do. And what I was really encouraged by was the Grizzlies seeing the gravity of the job pick and roll and capitalizing with a couple of weak side cuts in from the corner. I know Desmond Bain had one of those. Great to see that sort of intelligent movement from a rookie. Justice Winslow had one of them. And so I think for Ja, it's, it's a matter of painting the margins now. We know he can elevate, throw it down with the best of them. We know he's going to be a factor at the rim, but sort of painting the, painting the edges, cementing his impact on this team's offense, you know, whether he goes 16 for 20 or five for 20, I think last night was a great case of him knowing how to utilize his leverage and play that into buckets. They just might not have been his. Agreed. And, you know, the numbers seem to tell a story when it comes to jaw during the games this year, Adam. You know, in the first you know quarter, coming into last night's game, in the first quarter, he's shooting 39%. Second quarter, 44. Third quarter, 49. and then Or 43 in the second, 49 in the third, 44 in the fourth. So to me, what that kind of stands out is, is that, you know, um, it really does stand out that he t- it takes him a bit of time. And that's fine. He's 21 years old. It takes him a bit of time to see what the defense is throwing at him. Working with Coach Jenkins in the roster, he adjusts. In the third quarter, they're able to make the needed adjustments for him to really find his groove. Um, you know, they make their adjustments to get him to where he can hit shots. And then in the fourth, the defense adjusts back, but Josh still is effective because now his energy is able to take, you know, on more of a role since the defenses are tired. That kind of is the story of his game. But the thing that I'll say is this. Yes, he struggled this year, and that's fine. But in this back-to-back series, John took a step up defensively. He did a great job guarding Kelly Oubre, who was only 6 of 20 from the field in these two games. He had a block on Oubre. He had a big steal. And the other thing is, is that he had a lot of hustle plays. He put some pressure on some ball handlers that led to at least three turnovers, including a huge alley-oop attempt to Andrew Wiggins in the last three minutes of last night's game. He was the one that deflected it out. 
back to one of his teammates to get the steal to go forward. So I do think that Jaw is continuing to find ways to contribute outside of his scoring. You want that scoring to be there eventually, but he's finding ways to make an impact all across the board. Yeah, and defensively, I think that effort's really only going to shoot up from here. Um, I'm not meaning to speculate too much on a potential trade, and I don't have any sources to this whatsoever, but I think of a popular sort of trade archetype on Grizzlies Twitter and, and other sorts of discussions around the team is trading for a two guard that can put the ball in the hoop with some consistency. And that ranges from someone like Bradley Beal or Zach Levine, even down to like my guy, Evan Fournier. That's, that's who I want the Grizzlies to trade for. He's my person that I'm like beating the drum for, so to speak. And I think as the Grizzlies shot creators that are not John Morant sort of come into their own, um, you know, we have Dylan Brooks who can, at least in theory, create on all three levels. But I think as guys like Desmond Bain and Brandon Clark and potentially guys like DeAnthony Melton or even a draft pick in the future learn how to create for themselves, I think that just buys more energy for Jaw to expend on the defensive end. And I think, you know, with, with the NBA, minutes are crucial, seconds are crucial. Having even just 5% of your wind about you is crucial. And I don't mean to question John Morant's shape or anything. It's clear that that man can, can leap through tall buildings. Um, his physical prowess knows no bounds. But I think for a player like Ja, having more compliments on the offensive end, and I think in the, in the Warriors game that came through things like free throws, it came from being able to dump off the ball to Jonas so much. Like that, that frees up some energy for Ja to spend defensively and when he's able to do that, I really think physically he's going to be able to defend with the best of them. It's just going to take him some time to grow into that role. You know, we sit here and we talk about so star players who, you know, we think that, you know, they give so much energy on the offensive end. You know, they, they're like, you know, well, do they take plays off on the defensive end? Well, I'll tell you this. When it comes to uh, this team, so much is made about the energy, especially Dylan Brooks. There's no doubt Dylan Brooks's energy is admirable. He plays with so much energy, as do many others. But I think that it needs to be pointed out, Jaws consistently running, giving energy, things like that. And, it, you know, defense a lot of times for such an offensively centered player with a young player who offers so much of offensive value, defense is something that typically comes on in year two and three. Well, there's no question about his effort. It's just a functional effort now. And he said it last night when I asked him about it in the media session, he just said that sitting down with the coaches, really paying attention, Jaw gives a shit about his defense. And that's a big thing for a basketball player to do. That separates a lot of times the superstars from the stars. And that's something that Jaw does. He gives a shit about defense and he goes out there and he does not consistently in order for him to be able to make a difference. And, la and over these two games, it certainly has. Well, speaking of making a difference, you know, Adam, and, and we'll get into this, you know, kind of in a general sense. Another big thing that's kind of been deliberated out there is, you know, what guard next to John makes the most sense? And I'm kind of at this theory now. Taylor Jenkins loves starting the shooter next to John. And the first quarter numbers suggest it makes sense because Desmond Bain and Grayson Allen have been so accurate from three. But the thing about it is, is that when the defenses start to adjust to them and they start to take away that three ball from those guys, their flaws start to show a bit more than they should or a bit more that you'd like for them to play 30 minutes next to jaw. But we've got DeAnthony Melton. I'm just to the point to where I'm thinking, if you want to start the shooter, that's fine to try to get a good start. But at the end of the day, DeAnthony Melton should be the one playing the most minutes if he's not starting, which he should. 
your thoughts kind of on that two guard position next to jaw and how you've kind of seen it evolve and like how you would like to see it evolve going forward. I don't think the Grizzlies play what I would call positionless basketball right now. I mean, certainly Jonas holds down the center spot. Jaw and Tyus are the point guards. But I think it's equally valid to see the way this team plays through roles rather than positions. Right now, if we're looking at the starting lineup, just in terms of roles, you have your initiator, that's Jaw. You have your big or your screen and roller, that's Jonas. Um, you have a couple of floor spacers in Kyle Anderson and Grayson Allen. And then you have your defensive wing in Dylan Brooks. And I, I bring that up to say that my answer to your question, I think, is interesting because it doesn't so much have to do with who steps in into the role in shooting guard, but rather it's the configuration of roles within that starting lineup. To me, I think an interesting experiment to sort of go to would be instead of rolling out the, the wing defender role, which in this case is Dylan Brooks, I would see what happens if the Grizzlies throw in another shooter on offense, put one on both corners um, in order to stretch the floor as much as possible. And they'll be able to do that when Jaron Jackson Jr. is back. But I'm, I'm more talking about the immediate future where he's off the court. Um, I think Grayson Allen might not be the best fit for that. I think just because DeAnthony Melton is such a stout defender, he'll get you a steal, he'll get you a block, he'll get you whatever you need to do. To me, the answer to the two-guard position isn't just a switch of it, the two-guard. It's a philosophical shift where I'd be really interested to see what happens when the Grizzlies run jaw, you know, some combination at the four or five. We can debate on that, and boy, oh boy, we will. Um, but let's just say they started Melton and Bain at the two and three, threw them both in the corners. Suddenly that opens up a lot more space for the offense to operate because instead of the defense just being able to take away a Grayson Allen three and say, hey, Dylan Brooks, we're happy to let you beat us from distance. Suddenly you have another shooting threat to worry about on the floor. And I just think that's going to stretch defenses so thin that it's going to make life so much easier for everyone else on the Grizzlies offensively. You know, that brings up a lot of interesting thoughts because, you know, that's something that many have had when it came to this upcoming draft. And we won't get into this. We'll, 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 I'm sure we'll have you on again to discuss this. Um, but that's what many have had with the idea of Corey Kispert coming in from Gonzaga to potentially be a guy who you could space out with Desmond Bain next to John, really open that up. But you bring up an interesting thought. Maybe one of the things that allows for Melton to eventually start is the spacing that Taylor Jenkins wants. He can then get it from Jaron Jackson Jr. instead of having to create it at the two guard. That makes some sense. So, so I do think it brings up an interesting idea. I don't necessarily, on my end, I don't necessarily know if I want Bain and Grayson to starting because I do think you lose a little bit of what gives our of what our strength is in terms of defense. But I, it's obvious you've got to give that up a bit. But I agree with you. If you could have two reliable shooters out there, it probably would space things a bit better for Jaw. Now you got him attacking the lane with Jonas with two shooters out on the outside. Coming up though, we're going to discuss Jonas a little bit more. Me and Adam both agree. There's no doubt that Jonas has been productive. But how does that necessarily correlate with the Grizzlies' success? You know, it's kind of interesting what, you know, if Jonas is your featured guy by far, there could be strengths, but there could be a bit of struggles it also indicates. I'll look at that a bit more with Adam Teich when we come back on the Locked on Grizzlies podcast. 
All right, so Adam, you know, I I have spent this week uh, doing a three part series called Appreciating JV. You know what he's what he's done individually, you know, over the past six weeks, what he means to Jaw Jaron and the team itself, and you know where he stands. You know, and me and Parker Fleming of GBB both agree. We think that Jonas is certainly a top five big in the history of the Grizzlies franchise. But the thing about it is this, is that it's great what he does individually, but it also is is that he certainly has his flaws, especially against smaller lineups on defense. But what are your thoughts, even with his offensive production, what are your thoughts as far as how much that success that truly means for the ability to win? Well, to me, it's all about fit, right? I, I by no means mean to turn this into unappreciating JV with Adam Teich. Um, and it, it's clear that he's beloved around the locker room, you know, just from a face value, being able to throw in a skilled bruising big certainly has its merits in the modern NBA. Um, but I think oftentimes people get lost in the counting stats with Jonas. You see these big gouty box scores, 16 rebounds, 15 points, fourth in the NBA in rebounding. And people don't take sort of a closer look really put up the magnifying glass to his play and see how much that lines up with winning. I'm a math major. I'll admit it. I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. I'm not one of the TPA charts dudes on Twitter. That's a low that I don't stoop to. Um, but I'm just a, a smidge above that. And so I was running some simple like correlation stats on Jonas and briefly the way correlation works. Sorry if you guys already know this, but I, I like getting on the same page with my listeners is a strong positive correlation means as one thing goes up, one the other sort of variable in question also goes up. In a negative correlation, as one of your variables goes up, the other goes down. And I bring that context up, not just to preach about math, which I would. I'll talk to you about countably infinite sets for 20 minutes, but this is not locked on mathematics, I promise. Um, with Jonas, his plus minus is actually negatively correlated to the Grizzlies' margin of victory. And so that means JV, as JV's plus minus increases, the Grizzlies are more and more likely to lose just from a number standpoint this season. Now, again, this number only means so much because, of course, if all the Grizzlies are playing well, the Grizzlies are going to win. There's no question about that. You know, if JV is plus 50, Memphis is winning the game. But on a team that plays in the margins that often is having, you know, games come down to the wire, it's a little interesting to see JV's overall performance not line up with winning as much. And even like with the counting stats, I think that's what people keep coming back to with JV. Those have almost zero correlation to winning. I calculated the correlation between the Grizzlies margin of victory and Jonas's total points and rebounds. And I would say it's negative, but I think that's misleading because the number is so close to zero. It's like negative 0.07. It's tiny. And so to me, I think, and I think the eye test backs this up because I think Jonas's game is partly based on skill, but some of it is a little bit of empty calories. And so for me, long-term, I am a little concerned by the fact that those numbers don't line up especially when you consider Ja Morant's because I, I did the plus minus correlation with Ja, and that's, that's strongly positive. The better Ja plays, the Grizzlies almost always win. 
Oh yeah, and, and cleaning the glass supports that as well. But so and and so I understand it from the, your point of view and being a math major. That certainly makes sense with what you're saying. But to to put it, you know, kind of in you know the sense of you know what does it indicate? So when and back me up on this, Adam. So basically, when Jonas has a strong plus, when he's you know up there plus fifteen, plus twenty, my guess would mean typically that means that the Grizzlies are having to utilize him heavily because the team, uh, their shooters are not shooting. They're not finding success driving themselves or the floaters aren't falling. So typically that means he's getting offensive rebounds to put back in. They're giving him a lot of looks down on the low post. And what we run into then is that when we're having to heavily re- utilize him, we're probably trading twos for threes in which the other team is making threes. And also if we're heavy, having to heavily utilize him when he's off the court, it's really hard for our offense to operate. I would think that would be kind of the fallout from what those numbers are saying. Is that correct? Is that what those numbers are indicating? So agreed with you. Um, but I also think that the opposite case comes into effect here. I think even a little bit more where the Grizzlies, especially recently, like in, in their 49 point win against Houston, Jonas gets in foul trouble early, comes out of the game and he's like minus six and then that's when Memphis goes on their run. That's when they're blowing Houston out of the water. And so it is sort of a case of when JV is the only thing going for the Grizzlies that generally does not bode well for the game, but also looking at it from an off the court standpoint, you know, it's also an indicator that Jonas Valanciunas on the court for the Grizzlies might not always be best for them. I'm not saying take him out of the rotation completely, but what I am saying is when the numbers line up so that, you know, Jonas gets in foul trouble and the Grizzlies are still coasting to victory, like that's something to look at. You know, if, if Jonas is so important to that team, you know, consistent anomalies like this just shouldn't be happening. And I think that's why people like me gravitate towards Brandon Clark at the five or a future that sort of pushes Jonas to the margins is that if the Grizzlies have a very good asset in Jonas Valanciunas, but are consistently winning with him off the court, you know, why not try and flip that asset into an area where the Grizzlies really need to be investing like that 12, $13 million into a player. Absolutely. And I think that you see that, like, you know, that that's backed up. So, you know, the truth that, you know, I had mentioned as far as, you know, if the Grizzlies are heavily having to rely on Jonas, that sometimes falls into, I think, some of the stronger teams in the NBA's game plans. Though Jonas has been, was taken away by Miami and Golden State, you know, they wanted for the Grizzlies outside shooting to beat them. It didn't. You know, it, it, the Grizzlies were able to win, I think, with a little bit of luck against Miami because some threes weren't falling. But I can see both of what you're saying. And I think that's why you don't see Jonas just automatically on the court a lot of times in those final minutes. You see Justice at the four or Kyle at the four with BC at the five because of the defensive versatility and potential just skyrockets. Last night, I think it was a matchup thing where the Grizzlies just had such a big advantage rebounding that they went with Jonas and BC in the final minutes. But I would agree with you. It seems to me that Taylor Jenkins does realize that Jonas has his place, but it's more as a highly productive role player that does well at what he does instead of being a guy that you want to really rely on in high leverage situations. And Jonas's role is super interesting to me because it's kind of tethered to the starting lineup. I mean, much has been made about the Grizzlies starting five being, you know, having a net rating, up to holy heck 
But Jonas is pretty much a negative in all the Grizzlies' non-starting lineups. All of those lineups are pretty much negative, according to Cleaning the Glass. I'm sure there are a couple that's positive. I think Job, Melton, Brooks, BC, JV is positive. That's played through about 44 possessions. But that's pretty concerning to me that you have to sort of tether Valanchunas to the starting lineup in order to get winning production, especially sort of looking towards the long-term future. That poses several problems. Um, the combination of him and Jaron Jackson Jr. also isn't producing a lot of winning numbers. And the Grizzlies are starting Jaron Jackson Jr. That is a definite. Um, but last lineup, the last season, pardon me, lineups with the two of them were, I think, minus 5.1 per 100 possessions. That's not great. And so it sort of perceives that there's a bit of an identity crisis with JV coming up where he's been so good in the starting lineup not great in bench roles, but now with the Grizzlies starting lineup about to change with Jaron Jackson Jr. coming back into the rotation, hopefully soon, you know, it it poses this big question mark of where does Jonas Valanciunas go if he can't produce well within the starting lineup? No, I think it's a great point. And, you know, we sit here and we talk about Grayson and Desmond starting the game so well and those numbers being so well in the starting lineup. But then when the defense adjusts, well, can we adjust back? That's where they bring up the flaws with Desmond and Grayson. And I think Jonas is the same way. You bring up a great point. He does well starting off the game and starting the third quarter when we've made our adjustments, when we put ourselves to succeed. But when the defense counters, now what can we do? Jonas, Grayson, and Desmond may not be able to make to adjust to what the other team has adjusted to them as well as Melton and BC and others have. So I think that's why you see BC and you see Melton starting to play more in those high leverage or final minutes than you do Jonas Grayson or Desmond, and it's the co- Coach Jenkins is simply trying to balance it out. Is that kind of the, I guess, the conclusion that you come to for right now, and we're not truly going to get that answer until we get Jaron back? Sure. Yeah, with BC at the five, I think it's just sort of looking towards the future and what the best fit with this team is. You know, Brandon Clark has a lot of what I call centerly duties in his game. Like, just to do a little thought experiment for a second, I want you to think of a player in the Eastern Conference. This player is a serious threat in the pick and roll. He has a post move. He can shoot over both shoulders. And he's got the potential to block shots. Um, You might have thought of someone like Bam Adebayo, maybe like a Mitchell Robinson. Um, And I actually wasn't going for a specific player. I just threw out three descriptors of Brandon Clark to demonstrate that, like, When you think of player comps, more often than not, just comparing skill sets, the players that line up to him tend to be centers. And so it makes sense for the Grizzlies to utilize him that way. And then also the versatility that he brings to the table, being able to switch on to perimeter players, you know, that's obviously gravy. And I think sort of the final underpinning of playing BC at the small ball five is I think that's best case scenario for the Grizzlies once Jaron is back. I ran some more numbers on cleaning the glass the other day, and I don't, I haven't seen this spoken about on pockets of Grizzlies Twitter, but it's a crazy number. So I looked at lineups um, that had the Brandon Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr. front court last year, only with players that are still on the roster. 
So that means I excluded all minutes where anyone like Jay Crowder or um, what's his name, Josh Jackson, were on the floor for Memphis. I only looked at minutes where all five Memphis Grizzlies on the floor are still on the roster. And that's not a tiny sample size. It's like 450 possessions. In those minutes, lineups with Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark in the front court were plus 17.4 per 100 possessions. That's 99th percentile in the league among duos. It's an insane number. Adam, is that good? Uh, It's pretty all right, yeah. Oh, okay, good. Just making sure. Oh, like to say that as good as an understatement, that is like best in the league level numbers for a duo like that. It is clear that the Grizzlies will be at their best with Jaron at the five, BC at the four, um, but sort of with BC playing as the roller and Jaron at the spacer. You know, it's interesting because I think they're sort of interchangeably placed in the lineups position wise. But it's clear that having those two big bodies out there is going to lead to a lot of success in Memphis's future. And so why waste time fooling around right now with JV closing at the five when I think two, three years down the road, that's where Brandon Clark's going to be for Memphis. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, you know, that it's backed up by the fact that if you remember to the first game of the bubble, when we played Portland, when we played um, San Antonio and in the New Orleans game before Jaron unfortunately suffered his meniscus injury, you were seeing the John Brand- BC Jaron lineup really working. John Brandon in the pick and roll with, or John Brandon in the pick and roll with Jaron on the outside. It was a great combination. And that's what led us back in a few of those games. So unbelievable. And I'm glad that the numbers back it up. Folks, this is why I was looking so forward to talking with Adam. His mind is amazing when it comes to combining the mathematics, backing them to, to use his stats to back up the theories, and it certainly makes sense. So if you want good statistics, and if you want a plethora of words that have four or more syllables in them attributed to the game of basketball, his name is Adam Teich. Adam, where can folks find you on Twitter? And, and just in general, what things might you have coming up as far as the Grizzly season continues? Well, thanks for the kind word, Sean. You know, it means a ton to me coming from you guys. The, the Memphis media has just been such a, a welcoming family to me. And I'm really just falling in love with the team and the city and, and the media members around the team every single day. You can this find me on that to you. This team does that to you. It really does. Um, if, if you're into more nerdy stuff like this, you can find me on Twitter at not Adam or sorry, not underscore Adam T E I C H. I write for a lovely website called backsportspage.com. Next article I have on the docket is going to be sort of a film breakdown of the Warriors' defensive game plan against Memphis that I was discussing earlier. You know, looking through the film, seeing how Memphis was able to respond to the Warriors, leaving guys like Kyle Anderson wide open in the corner in game one. You know, going forward in game two, looking at the film, plenty of gifts, plenty of pictures, hopefully a little bit of memes in there. Don't want to promise on that. Um, And going over all of that, looking to see how Memphis countered really get giving you a good look through the X's and O's of how Taylor Jenkins responds as an NBA head coach. You know, I feel the best way that I can compliment someone is when I sit there and I see their tweets on a consistent basis. And I'm either like, I agree with that, or I didn't think of that. And I do that through for Adam a lot. His name is Adam Teich. He's been a great 
great person to get to know over the past few months covering the Grizzlies on my end. Please follow him and also check out his great work. Again, not underscore Adam Teich, and that's T-E-I-C-H, right? Did I get that right, Adam? You got it. It's tough to get the pronunciation and the spelling. Not a lot of people get both, so good job (laughs) on your end. I appreciate it. Yeah, but his name is Adam Teich. Adam, stick with us. You can find the show at Locked on Grizz, myself at Stats SAC. Coming up tomorrow, we will have another special guest from the Celtics blog as, as well as many other podcasts around the world. Mr. Adam Taylor will be with us tomorrow to discuss the Celtics game. We'll have him. Um, and he will actually be recording later on today. But it was a pleasure talking with you. For Adam, my name is Sean Coleman. Thank you so much. Great job by the Grizzlies to get the split this weekend. Hopefully they'll continue that momentum into next week. For Adam Teich, my name is Sean Coleman. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Locked on Grizzlies podcast.